Welcome to a special edition of the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on the series, we have Mara Krunfeld, who is the executive director of UNRWA USA. This episode is all about the humanitarian crisis and catastrophe in Gaza. We're recording this on Friday, October 20th at 3.30 p.m. Palestine time. Um, just for our listeners to understand when we are having this conversation, because it is a day-by-day, minute-by-minute type of situation. Um, Mara, first, thanks so much for being here. Uh, uh, glad to be here. Thank you, Mikey, for having me in Africa. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you just, before we get started, can we just um, give a sense of your vantage point? Um, a lot of people have seen these five letters, you know, UNRWA, U-N-W-R-A. Um, can you just set the table a little bit? What does this agency do and um, what is it doing in Gaza right now? Yes, yeah, so UNRWA, or um, I tend to pronounce it in the Arabic way, UNRWA, UNRWA in English, um, and those five letters are U-N-R-W-A, and that is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. And UNRWA was established uh, right after the creation of Israel in 1948. It was established in 1949, and its mandate was to address uh, the humanitarian needs of that population, of those living in Palestine um, who were uh, displaced. And that is why the UNRWA uses this kind of strange adjective of Palestine refugees instead of Palestinian because it was meant to serve anybody who was displaced at that time, whether they be Muslim, Christian, or Jewish. Um, and uh, of course, we all know there are about 700,000 people displaced, uh, Palestinians displaced um, at that time. And that number, the number, and those are the refugees, um, as the Nakba, as Palestinians say, of course, um, caused by the Nakba. And those uh, refugees have grown into a population of some uh, 5.6 million people. Hmm. UNRWA serves that it has the potential to serve all of those uh, Palestine refugees and probably serves um, somewhere around 2.5, 2.6 million of those refugees on an annual basis in the five field sites where those refugees are. So that includes Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem, as well as Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan. Um, so that gives you a little little yeah. overview and happy to tell you more. Okay, let's talk about Gaza for a second. Um, a lot of people listening to this may not understand that the 2.2 million people who live in Gaza are refugees. A yes. lot of them are. Can you try to explain that to somebody who's listening to this for the first time? Yes. So um, UNRWA started its operations in Gaza uh, in the 1950s and then... Um, with, uh, and those were with people who um, were uh, displaced from other settings in Palestine, in historic Palestine, um, who were there. And then in 67, 1967 war, there was a whole new population um, of Palestinians who uh, were um, were displaced, who were um, uh, uh, dispossessed, and who ended up in um, forced into um, the Gaza area. And that population of 2.2 million is, uh, are those individuals and their descendants. Um, and so the refugee status, as it does across international, not international law, this is not unique to UNRWA, despite many theories. Um, the descendants of refugees on the male side are included as, uh, as refugees by international, uh, humanitarian law. And, um, and that makes up that. Uh, sorry, that I should I should clarify that one that sixty percent approximately one point six million of those two point two million uh, Palestinians in Gaza are registered refugees with UNRWA. So it's yeah. not the entire population that are registered refugees with UNRWA. Mm. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the world in in Gaza before. Uh, October 7th, a, a week and a half ago, which feels like a year ago. Yeah. Um, and talk about 
the humanitarian catastrophe that existed before then and how it's been exacerbated now. But I'm going to say a few different words, and I'd love to sort of go down the list and understand how the siege and um, the blockade and the many different ways, um, the many different aspects of the crisis, how how they they've been created. So maybe if we can talk about it from an economic perspective, from a restriction on movement, healthcare, food, water, sanitation, energy, um, mental health. So maybe let's let's start with just like the basic, which is restriction on movement. Um, and then we can start to explore all. Yeah, thank you, Mikey. I think that's such an important topic. Uh, and I'm sitting here in the United States and I can tell you that um, many folks I know, including dear friends and family, don't really understand what has taken place in Gaza you know, over the last 56 years, uh, let alone, um, sorry, over the last 17 years, let alone the last 56 years. And these last 17 years, while while um, Gaza was, uh, uh, while the Israeli forces removed themselves from Gaza and the settlements were removed from Gaza, Gaza was never um, truly um, an autonomous um, uh, setting. Uh, because Israel controls the borders by land, sea, and air. Um, and so, and this is because of the blockade. So the 17-year blockade has meant that um, that those in Gaza um, cannot leave uh, via the Erez crossing into Israel without explicit permission uh, and a permit to do so from Israel. And um, I know that those permits are are not are on the tool. They're not automatic. They um, they um, and I know people who've been denied exit, including my own colleague uh, Hani Al Mafdoun, who's a Palestinian from Gaza, who uh, and has American citizenship, um, and was uh, not able uh, to leave the crossing at Erez when he wanted to the summer before last, and uh, ended up staying six weeks longer than. He had planned to with his family, um, and that's because the border was closed in that setting. Even though he's an American citizen, citizen, he couldn't get out. Then the other side um, of the border um, is with Egypt, um, but Israel also controls aspects of that border. And then those who are able to get out through the Rafah, this is previous to the, the humanitarian crisis we're facing now, of course. Um, I know that it is extremely difficult um, to get out on that side and also Frankly, to get across the Sinai um, is a very can be a harrowing experience for those who've done it, and often, frankly, I've heard of many people who've had to bribe uh, those in Egypt, frankly, to the point of several thousands of dollars to be able to get out uh, individually, each of them to be able to get out and get to Cairo and then fly out of Cairo. So traveling, um, that's traveling out, uh, traveling into Gaza. I, I can tell you from personal experience, also. Uh, is difficult. You have to get a permit, uh, again, from the Israelis. Uh, for me to go into Gaza as an American citizen, uh, I have to get a permit from the Israelis uh, to get in, uh, and that has to be approved. And um, that process could take a long time. Um, and and I can tell you just, I have a deep friendship with a family that I've known for some 20 years, um, and I don't think they'd mind me mentioning them, the Abu Hashem family in Gaza. And um, they, um, I go visit them. I went to visit them the summer before last when I went to Gaza and I had the matnube at their house, their mom cooked and their, their, uh, four of their sons have been studying in the U.S. Um, at MIT, Harvard, uh, one is oh, wow. helping to cure cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, one is working at Apple. Uh, one has a Rhodes scholarship right now and one's at Stanford. Um, mm -hmm, and they're wow. just a truly amazing family. And, um, I heard some of the saddest stories on an interpersonal level previous to, to this to this last uh, 10, 12 days um, from their father who who spoke about who showed me a room, basically a, a transit room where where when the family's able to get there, um, this is where they stay. Um, and this room happened to have maybe 10 pieces of luggage. And that luggage is luggage that the family had, that the bro brothers and their wives and their spouses had taken in to the house when they came to visit. 
but they're not allowed to leave with it. So um, you can only carry a certain amount of luggage out of Gaza. And um, and so, so many things they brought with them, which they intended to bring back or things that they wanted to bring back from Gaza as keepsakes, they were not able to. And so this is this transit room where it sits with luggage that um, that they couldn't get back out once they got in. Um, and then at that time, Anise had been waiting months and months and months to to travel to the U.S. to see his family, and he wasn't able to get a permit. He's finally um, this earlier this year was able to 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 visit. So that's a that's a a incredible story, um, and one that I think is probably not unique. Uh, sadly, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the other aspects of of the siege and the occupation. Um, you know, and I think maybe we can start with healthcare and mental health, um, just because of the heartbreaking, uh, stories and images coming out of the, uh, the, the bombing of the hospital in, in Gaza. It's hard for me to understand what the healthcare situation was like, um, for, the population of 2.2 million people. Um, and what is it like now? Like literally every single, every single piece of, uh, every single um, supply of medicine is controlled by the Israelis. The electricity, the gas to run, oil to run the hospitals. And how can, how has it even been operating before, before the bombing of a hospital and the, the carpet bombing of the place? Yes. Um, Yes. Uh, it, well, I can tell you when I was in Gaza the summer before last, it was harrowing then. And I just cannot even imagine for a moment what it is like now. It was already harrowing. And it was harrowing because of several factors. Um, one is uh, the injuries uh, that many, that the hospital uh, that the hospital, that the healthcare system had to have to deal with from the t- May 2021 um, uh, military assault on Gaza, um, and all the all the trauma. Uh, so not only the physical um, the physical ailments, the, the 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 injuries, the death that came from that, um, but also the mental health trauma, the mental health epidemic. Um, from not only that military assault, but if you can imagine, Mikey, for a second, and I and I hope anyone listening can really think deeply about this, a, a child in Gaza, a 16-year-old young person in Gaza, has been through six, now seven military assaults in her short lifetime. I have 12-year-old twins, and if I imagine they've been through anything like that, I cannot fathom as a parent, as a mother, as a human being, what that would be like for a child, um, how they, how their brain can can handle uh, that much tragedy, that much um, human suffering. It's 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 unfathomable, frankly. And so when I went to the hosp- when I went to the healthcare, one of the healthcare centers in, in Gaza, um, in the in the north of Gaza, and mind you, UNRWA operates twenty two health centers across Gaza. Um, Frankly, right now, only about six of those are, are currently operating um, because of the lack of safety um, and because many underwater installations have been bombed. Um, I saw the pain. I heard the pain in, um, in the voices of um, the doctors I spoke to and, and the head of, of the health unit uh, the health department in Gaza. They can't get some of the the core diseases that that Palestinians in general suffer from, like diabetes, um, uh, like um, high blood pressure, like cancer. They cannot get their medicine. They cannot get the medicine to treat those diseases into Gaza. Those are often restricted at the border. And um, it is very difficult for those basic medicines uh, to get in. Uh, and I can't explain that for you. I can't, I can't right now tell you which medicines can and which can't and why some can and some can't. But I will tell you that the blockade has meant that only some medicines get in and not enough. 
and not all the ones that are needed. So that trauma was there on the face of the hospital staff that I met with. The other is the injuries that a whole generation of Palestinians from Gaza faced during the Great March of Return, when um, thousands of mostly men went to the border between Gaza and Israel and protested this 17-year blockade at that point, um, you know, however many years it was. Mm-hmm. And, and during those protests, many young people, mostly young men, were maimed, were either shot in the legs or shot in the arms. Um, and so you have a generation of people who have lasting injuries, physical and mental, from their attempt to protest this occupation, to protest the occupation, uh, the ongoing occupation and siege of Gaza. And I think it's so important to say that to, 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 an, to an audience, especially for an audience here in the States who might say, well, why don't, why don't they protest peacefully? What is going on right now? Why, why did Hamas react this way? I can't speak for Hamas, of course. I don't know anybody in Hamas. But there were peaceful protests on the part of Palestinians in Gaza. And, and many, a generation, were maimed, um, lost their arms or their legs during those protests. Can, uh, for the folks in the back, so to speak, um, who are interested in researching the history of those peaceful protests, can you think of how they can find more information right now? Like they're typing into Google. What do they search? Yeah, search the Great March of Return in Gaza, uh, and you will find out about that. Um, yes, uh, there. I mean, there's a lot of um, information, and, and 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 you're so right, Mikey. So many people don't know. I heard about it. You know, I have to be honest. I'm I'm very engaged in 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 the Middle East. I've been working in and out of the Middle East region for my whole professional career, some 30 years, and um, I only knew very little about this. And hearing it from the mouths of the doctors who had to treat those who returned, um, that that trauma is still there. Yeah. Um, and and then the last thing I'll say on this is is uh, Dr. Hedda, she's the head of the health unit. She was the one sharing these stories with so powerfully and with the pain of, of just being a first person um, a responder to these um, to these injuries and suffering, she um, she uh, she mentioned that one of her staff members, a doctor, was from the Al Kolak family, who in 2021 had lost some uh, 19, 20 members of their family during that assault, and that doctor was still working but living that trauma. Uh, every day uh, at the hospital. And now we have, who who could have imagined now that we have many such families who lost some of them, 43 members of their family. A whole, several families have been killed en masse. Um, my own colleague has lost 14 members of his family. I mean, it's just unimaginable from our perspective sitting here, um, at least in, in D.C. I know... Uh, I know too many in Lebanon have faced difficult situations as well. Um, before we pressed record, you were mentioning um, your colleague on the ground, um, Maraz, who is um, whose photos have gone around the world. Um, millions and millions and millions of people have seen his his work. What is the actual like day to day relationship like with somebody? who's doing this work, I mean, when they're cutting internet, they're cutting electricity, how is he getting those images out there? Um, and, you know, how is he doing this? We, we ask that self, we ask that question to ourselves every day because this gentleman, Motez Azeza, I know any fo- most of the videos, most of the reels all of you have seen are, are from him or a couple of other amazing, brave journalists, men and women, um, uh, on on the ground in Gaza, sharing with the world what it's like to experience this devastating assault, and and Moatez, we we uh, are in contact with him pretty much daily. My colleague Leila Mukhaiber, our director of communications, is in touch with him daily, uh, and we he is essentially um, someone we hired um, as a contractor. Um, 
well before this conflict to show stories of life on the ground in Gaza. And he is such a gifted videographer, photographer, and, and such a beautiful human being. He was sharing photos that were beautiful of the life that I saw in Gaza a year and a half ago of uh, families and children and and um, the ability to smile and 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 find joy in spite of the challenges that these people in Gaza have faced over the very many years. And then to have um, this crisis, this 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 assault, this war come upon him, we immediately told Mataz, you are you have no obligation anymore for immediate videos. And in fact, your safety is our number one concern. So we ask you to seek shelter immediately. He he and his bravery and along with some with a number of others uh, on the ground in Gaza could not do that because of his own conscience. And they have been out there documenting what is going on. So it has been, uh, again, the word that keeps coming to mind is harrowing for him. We have seen him. We've all seen him. Those who watch, we've seen him break down, excuse me, when his two best friends, his twin friends were were killed. We saw him break down when 15 members of his family were killed. Um, if it, we know that um, that he has seen uh, and been very close to bombs. He thought he almost, he was, thought he was going to die on at least one evening over the last 10 days when a bomb struck very near. Um, we've seen him covering the most harrowing situations of children being pulled out of rubble, of hospitals overwhelmed, of paramedics sobbing because of the pain they've seen. And I have to tell you, Mikey, I am a weak person. I can't see those videos. I I can't see them because of the damage I know it will do to my mental health, say to my brain, to my, to my, this way the synapses work in my head. And people are seeing this every single day in front of their eyes for the last 12 days. So um, their strength in this moment is superhuman. I, I, um, I, my my hat is off to them, and I just say that Aziz, that that Mataz is one of the most amazing individuals uh, we've had the, the the honor to know. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's so harrowing, um, and frightening, and heartbreaking. It's uh, yeah, it's um, but it's just like the most important work. Um, so yeah, uh, God bless him. Yeah. We got to speak to him, by the way, the other day, uh, my colleagues did, I was in a, in another uh, meeting, but they showed me a picture and he was smiling from ear to ear to see our oh, staff. And, and, um, and I, I emailed him that day to say, I missed the call, but to see your smiling face filled me with joy. And, um, and so he's holding up despite uh, everything he's witnessed. Um, you're based in D.C. The last three words in, uh, last three letters in in the organization is USA, uh, the organization that you're a part of. Um, one subject of conversation that um, people are having constantly is, is the sentiment, the the is the Palestine solidarity movement in the U.S. gaining ground at all? Um, have we seen a shift historically? Are people starting to wake up and open up, open their eyes to what's happening? Yeah. And so, from your perspective, somebody who spent a career on this, I can tell you from my perspective, but I'd love to hear from yours. Um, are people in the U.S. starting to open their eyes? Yeah. Um, and Mikey, that's such a great question. And let me just for a moment take off my official UNRWA USA hat. And 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 um, at some point I should explain to uh, those listening um, really the difference between UNRWA USA uh, and UNRWA. We can we can cover that later. Yeah. Um, but let me just take off that hat and, and speak to you 
uh, first and foremost, as a human being and as someone who has, like you mentioned, and like I mentioned, really been engaged um, in the Middle East um, and, um, you know, traveled back and forth, lived extensively in the region. Um, and also, frankly, as someone who happens to be Jewish um, and and um, I can tell you that first I could tell you to answer your question directly, there has been a, a shift on the ground in public opinion uh, in the U.S. And and that shift um, has been has been measured by um by at least um Shibli Telhami um and his um uh global uh, I don't know the exact name but global issues poll which showed that um more and more young people are looking at the issues of of Israel and Palestine and and are are having a better understanding of the Palestinian narrative and and are feeling um a sense of um of of shared understanding about that and that's true among Jewish young Jewish people as well that generational divide uh, goes across religions even evangelicals um young um young people are um starting to be more sympathetic to understand um frankly a side of this narrative that has been less less available, less out there in, in the U.S. Um, setting. Um, and and we've seen over the last couple of days with the humanitarian crisis and the utter uh, tragedy unfolding in front of our eyes, the, the, the military airstrikes that have killed so many, now 3,700 Palestinians in Gaza, so many of those uh, children, we have seen um, a very vocal Jewish voice for peace, if not now, joining Palestinians to call for an immediate ceasefire. And that, by the way, is what UNRWA is calling for, an immediate ceasefire and the immediate access of humanitarian aid into Gaza. So um, I can tell you as a Jewish American who has lived and loved, loved so much of my experience in the Middle East and has been so welcomed from living in Syria for two years, living in Morocco in the North Africa for a long time and living in Egypt for a year and then traveling back and forth uh, to Palestine numerous times. I can tell you um, that that there is a broadening understanding in the U.S. and that it is wonderful to see Jewish people like myself really trying to understand the truth um, and and start to speak out in support of all people and to address the the um, what looks like is what is the collective punishment of a whole people. My grandfather escaped Nazi Germany. His whole sister's family was murdered by the Nazis. He was a very influential person in my life, and he said never again. And you hear this from many Jewish people these days. Never again doesn't just apply to Jewish people. And I'm speaking to you as a person and to your audience as a person. It applies to anybody who is brutalized because of who they happen to be, where they happen to be born, who their parents happen to be, what their parents or they happen to believe. This is wrong no matter what people wear. And um, and having a Muslim husband and kids who are nus-nus, hap-hap, I can tell you that their blood from their dad's side and their mom's side is the same blood. And one blood doesn't hurt more than the other, and one blood, one part of their blood is not more human than the other part of their blood. It's time yeah. that our humanity embrace all of those suffering innocently and not just some of them do you feel like um the that um sentiment is is landing um on americans ears differently than it did 20 years ago i think i think there is a movement in the u.s which 
is intersectional, so to speak, which is broadening beyond um, one kind of interest group supporting their own aims. There's an acknowledgement that we need to help each other. And um, I have seen that and I do think it's growing. And I also do think it's a generational shift. I think that um, I think that it's a powerful generational shift. And I I can say that I felt kind of lonely sometimes as a Gen X uh, addressing this, really being concerned with this with this issue. And I am awed by by Gen Z. And I work with many Gen Z and I see them out in D.C. the last couple of days and I am awed by their by their ability to speak truth to power. And um, and um, so I do think it's shifting and I do think um, I do think uh, a kind of tired us versus them, Jew versus whatever, Muslim, Christian, whatever is 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 not the situation that we're dealing with. I think that this is not to say that there isn't anti-Semitism. Of course there is. And by the way, it goes without saying, I know people who were killed and abducted in Israel. My heart aches for them. It is not either or. It is, it is and. Our hearts are big enough, all of us, to care for the innocent who were killed and abducted in Israel and the and the 3,700 people, Palestinians who have died, the 12,000 injured, and a population of 2.2 million under an absolute nightmare, beyond a nightmare, um, uh, a situation like we we can't even uh, we don't even have words for the, the the tragedy that's unfolding in front of our eyes. So um, I want to ask about this um, it's a, a recurring sort of. Uh, talking point and question that's emerged. Um, and the question is centered around why won't Egypt open its borders? Um, there are all these uh, uh, Palestinians in, in Gaza who are being told by the Israelis, go south. Um, we're going to, using their words, level it. Um, and then you know, the Egyptian uh, president, President Sisi, has said we're not opening this, but we've seen images of camps being erected um, in southern Palestine. And um, this question of, is there going to be a new huge population of Palestinians who are being forced out and will live in um, refugee camps? Can you help give us some historical context about why that's uh, such a painful um, idea, um, but also the history of that type of displacement and what we're what why this question is um, needs to be explored and with depth and compassion. Yeah, I think uh, again, as a human being, I can tell you uh, first and foremost, I can tell you my colleague um, Hanny, his um, his his family. Um, was refugeed, was dispossessed in 48, in 67. And now they're worried about being dispossessed of their land once again. And this is just one story among the millions um, that Palestinian uh, refugees in Gaza are facing right now. Um, this is a, a trauma that I can tell you my grandfather had and from from escaping Nazi Germany and, and the Holocaust. This is a, a generational trauma, what the Palestinians call the Nakba and the dispossession and being forced um, off of their homelands, many of them still having the key of the house they used to live in. It is hitting Palestinians at that deep, deep psychological level that I can tell you when I grew up, I had relatives say Shoah or Holocaust. It that the pain, the, the, the your whole body contorting, thinking about this, this is what the Palestinians have gone through with with um, dispossession. So that, just turning for a second now as underwear USA, I can tell you that, that uh, we have heard as of this morning 
that there are 20 truckloads of aid uh, from Egypt that um, uh, there's been about I think, 300 or so trucks lined up at the border to provide aid. Um, we have heard that 20 trucks are going to be allowed in either as we speak, they're coming in or imminently. Um, and uh, that the UN, broadly speaking, is in charge of, of this delivery of, of, of aid across the border in Rafah. Now, this is highly, highly complex operation. Um, Israel has bombed the Rafah border um, and so at, within Gaza. So the whole infrastructure at that border has much of that infrastructure has been destroyed and the war and the, excuse me, the roads are on, uh, you can't maneuver on the roads. You can't drive on the roads because they've been bombed. So, um, and then you also have, because of the um, expulsion order uh, of the Israeli army, as you mentioned, moving 1 million people, asking 1 million people to move south. There are tens of thousands, if not more, and I can't speak accurately to, to the total number, sitting at that border, standing, sitting at that border of Rafah, desperate for food, water, help, safety. Uh, our own, my own colleagues at UNRWA are, um, the, the, the headquarter staff moved from Gaza City, which was, by the way, uh, struck by Israeli missiles, a UN installation, and that's one of 33 United Nations installations that have been struck by the Israeli military, striking- When you say, sorry, Mara, I just want to interrupt you for a second. When you say installation, what help, what does that mean? Is that like somebody, that sounds like a non-human term. What is it, <laughs> installation? Thank you, that's the UNRWA speak. Yes, those, yeah. are, those are United Nations uh, buildings where um, most of them are shelters, where um where um where uh inter internally displaced people or palestinians in gaza were seeking refuge uh have been seeking refuge um one of those and those shelters are um many of them there's about a hundred of those shelters um uh, many of them are under schools themselves that served as service shelters and emergencies some of those installations are built or buildings are warehouses where under is keeping so um, these are, let me say, bold, underline, all caps. These are United Nations run institutions, shelters, schools, run by United Nations staff. Yes, 100% and 100% civilian, uh, of course. The, what, the U, what the United Nations uh, Relief and Works Agency is, has been doing in Gaza since uh, the 50s is providing education, health, shelter, protection, disaster relief services. So these are the the infrastructure that allows that service uh, to happen. Um, and um, and those those have the UN flag flying on them. That hitting any United Nations building is a, uh, a violation of international humanitarian law. And 33 of those buildings have been hit by UNRWA. Sorry, in the by, last, excuse me. In the last the uh, 13 military. days. Yeah, in the last 13 days. And so when the headquarters in Gaza City were hit, um, the staff, the international staff who were there moved, or sorry, the headquarters staff, I should say, moved south to Rafah. Right now they're in a warehouse, an UNRWA warehouse. It's not meant to house or shelter humans. Has 8,000 people in it. What? Yes, 8,000 people in a warehouse. And this is unsubstantiated, but we've heard from our colleagues that there are two latrines. Um, so that's at the border. Um, and so I right now it's figuring out how we can get food across the border from Egypt. Uh, and this is obviously many different, you know, the U.S., Israel, Egypt, um, the U.N. are discussing how the logistics of this. Um, but it has to, and UNRWA demands humanitarian access as soon as humanly possible. People in that in that in that shelter shelter in that warehouse are living on one liter of water a day. The 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 World Health Organization, if I'm correct, says we need 12 liters of water a day. 
Um, there has been no food, water, uh, there's been no food or fuel into Gaza for these 12 days. And the water treatment, you know, what, you know how salinated Gaza sits right on the Mediterranean. The water is naturally very saline, which people can't drink. Yeah. And so you have to go, the water has to go through a desalination process or bottles are brought in. And those, by the way, those bottles of water come from Israel and they're not being allowed in right now. And the fuel is needed to run the desalination plants. People are drinking brackish, salty water and they're, and they're drinking dirty water. And there are waterborne diseases happening right now as we speak because of it. So um, it, you know, it is um, it is a humanitarian tragedy. It is a, a collective punishment. As my colleague said, it is an abyss. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 heartbreaking. I mean, even the language around um water and electricity in the in the media and the news um it's so nuanced and it's you know they they say like they um they say things like oh, oh they don't have uh clean water right as if they themselves <laughs> have dirtied the water you know um it's their fault that they don't have clean water um it's their fault that they don't have electricity it's as if it was mismanaged um it's really uh, infuriating um and heartbreaking um since we we started talking about p power um and or actually i, I wanted i want to ask you about humanitarian aid um because that's subject that is uh we're you know it's a minute by minute type situation wondering if they can open up the border um between egypt and gaza to let in humanitarian aid um I've heard that term my whole life. Um, what does humanitarian aid actually mean? I mean, what actually rolls across the border? Yeah, yeah. Well, right now, what is um, uh, desperately needed is um, food. Uh, there has been no food, like I said, from the outside um, coming uh, into Gaza since um, since October seventh. Uh, need water. Um, the water supply was cut off by the Israelis. There are reports that there was the water came, that the Israelis turned the water back on for three hours in the south. Those are unsubstantiated. I don't know if that happened or not. Um, but um, that would have been uh, affecting a very minimal, uh, a small population vis-a-vis -vis the huge need, as I mentioned. Um, so food, water, uh, it, it would also mean fuel to run uh, the desalination plants to um, uh, run, uh, I presume, although I'm uh, electricity plants. Um, uh, and um, I don't know what's actually in those trucks because that, that I'm not I cannot speak to that. But my my assumption would it would it would be actual food and water. And then um, the other humanitarian need that is desperate is uh, medical supplies. Um, uh, and I don't know if those are in that those trucks are not, but um, we have heard from uh, those clinics on the ground that they are running out of medical supplies. I mean, basic medical supplies, let alone the the medicines for, for diabetes, cancer, um, and uh, high blood pressure that um, they've been trying to get in for, um, for a number of years. Your colleagues who drive those trucks, presumably, right? Does anyone feel safe? in Gaza right now? Yeah, so I, I actually don't know with with the... Or, I mean, uh, metaphorically. Yes, like metaphorically, because any, any right, I don't know who's, any of, who's actually no, no, any, driving those I mean, trucks. Literally, is anyone safe? Yeah. A doctor, a nurse, a school teacher, a, uh, a photographer, a journalist. Is there anyone who feels safe? I don't know of anyone who feels safe. And I can't imagine in this setting um, anyone who, who would... Um, uh, the, um, I can tell you the story, story is too quaint of a word, the, the trauma that my colleague Hanny's family is facing, because I know it so well, because Hanny and I talk every day. Um, as I mentioned, 14, 14 members of his extended family, the Mahdoun family, were killed. He, his family lives in the north of Gaza. 
And when uh, Israel said one million people must relocate within the space of 24 hours, some of his extended family left, his mother, his immediate family, his, his mother, and some of his siblings, and many of his nephews and nieces did not. And they did not because those who left, whether friends or family, told them, we left, we're Than Yunus, and the conditions are deplorable. We are with thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. We have no bathrooms. There is no food or water. Um, it is very, um, we are in open air sometimes. We are afraid for our lives here. And some of those who fled out of the, what I understand are two evacuation routes in Gaza, it's a very small place when you think about it overall, were bombed. And so you can understand why Hanny's mom decided to stay in the North as much as we fear for her safety. Because she didn't have any assurance that taking the other decision would have been a better decision. She is now, the last four days has been under a stairwell with her family, with her, with all of Hanny's nephews and nieces living in a stairwell in their apartment, thinking that that's the most safe place should there be a bomb, a missile landing on their, on their apartment. So, um, so no, I, I don't see that anyone is safe. No. The, and you go to shelters, which are supposed to be safe, which are UN installations, and those have been hit. Hospitals, um, um, hospitals even outside of Al-Ahli have been hit as, as, as harrowing and as horrific as that incident was. Schools have yeah. been hit. That's an impossible situation. Um, you were mentioning the number of, uh, schools, um, and clinics and hospitals. Um, are there any still operating that are a UN operated? Are there any places that are able to provide shelter and medical care? Yeah. So, um, under, under normal conditions of normal, I guess, whatever, if, if I don't think you can call a 17 year blockade, normal conditions, but Previous um, um, uh, to um, to the last twelve days, um, uh, UNRWA operated uh, some uh, hundred and ninety schools, which were uh, uh, basically in ninety different buildings. So each school um, ran a double shift, some even triple shifts, uh, and those uh, those schools serve three hundred thousand students uh, in Gaza. So um, UNRWA in some ways can be considered, could have been considered prior um, to this crisis that the um, de facto Ministry of Education on many levels, given they were educating such a huge swath of, of, of young people in Gaza. Um, and the hospital, uh, sorry, the health center. So they have a health center. They don't, UNRWA doesn't run hospitals per se. They run health centers uh, for kind of... Um, primary care, not um, necessarily secondary or tertiary. And there um, are 22 health centers across UNRWA. Um, only six of those are operational now, but UNRWA, uh, UNRWA staff um, attended to so many um, uh, issues that uh, the Palestinian, uh, Palestine refugees in Gaza face, again, from diabetes care, uh, cancer care, um, uh, high blood pressure, dealing with high blood pressure, to, um, as you had mentioned earlier in, in our interview, the, um, uh, the mental health challenges uh, that are huge uh, in the population, um, given uh, like the, 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 the many uh, military assaults that people have faced. Um, and um, the, the, uh, the Mental health support is both through the health centers and also through the school system. And um, UNRWA USA has supported uh, uh, for many years the provision of mental health and psychosocial support services for young people in the school system who receive individual and group counseling um, through trained uh, trained counselors. Um, the uh, one one also very important um, statistic that that everyone should know is that there are thirteen thousand 
Palestine uh, refugees who work for UNRWA. So um, 5,000 of those are currently working in this emergency setting. As far as we know, we don't know. uh, uh, Oh, sorry, I can't hear you. Let me. You're on mute, I think. Yeah. Sorry, did you mean in in Palestine right now? In in. So in Gaza itself, there are 13,000 Palestine refugees who work for UNRWA. Um, because it, it's unlike any other United Nations um, agency. It is actually an operational organization, actually per, a, a service implementer. So without it, we're talking about a, a whole school system shutting down, a whole health center, a whole health system shutting down. There are of the 30,000 employees who work for UNRWA, again, like no other UN agency, uh, uh, some uh, the vast, vast majority of those, maybe perhaps some 29,000 of those are Palestine refugees themselves. Um of the 13,000 who who normally would work in Gaza, some 5,000 have been working under this emergency uh, situation. Um, um, but of course, many of those employees um, had to flee themselves. Um, and um, and unfortunately, 16 of our colleagues have, have been killed. Um, and those include teachers, um, uh, 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 maintenance people, and a gynecologist. And... Um, and we know, we, we fear that many more have been killed. We just haven't been able to, we don't know the names of, of course, all of the many victims um, over the last couple of um, days. It's, uh, it's heart-wrenching. Um, well, Mara, I mean, it's, I don't even know how to possibly end this conversation except for thanking you for making time and for doing the work that you're doing. We have some about some 8,000 letters that have been sent to Blink, to Secretary of State Blinken, and we know uh, and we urge the U.S. Um, to do everything in their power to help humanitarian assistance get into Gaza, and we call for an immediate ceasefire. Yes. Mara, um, again, thank you to you and your team, and much love to Leila, who has been a hafikra original from the very beginning. Um, Thank you so much for doing your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mikey.